Hi, everyone, and welcome to the final episode of NATO's Road to Madrid, the CSIS podcast breaking down the main issues on the alliance agenda, especially Russia's war in Ukraine and the development of a new strategic concept. I'm Max Bergman, the director of the Europe, Russia and Eurasia program at CSIS. A month after the historic summit in Madrid, we're taking stock of the outcomes and looking to the future. To do that, we've brought back a special guest, the original host of this podcast, Rachel Elahus. Earlier this year, Rachel left CSIS and moved to Brussels to join the U.S. mission to NATO, where she wears two hats as both the Secretary of Defense representative in Europe and the defense advisor for the U.S. mission. Last week, I spoke with U.K. Ambassador David Quarry on the key summit decisions and the new strategic concept. This week, I picked Rachel's brain on what it will likely take to actually realize NATO's ambitions and what the alliance might look like a decade from today, or by the time it begins to work on the next strategic concept. We hope you enjoy the discussion. Rachel, thank you so much for joining us on Road to Madrid. Thanks for having me, Max. So as the former host of this podcast, you know, our goal has been to walk our listeners through the alliance agenda leading up to the summit. Uh, And of course, we had no idea when we started that there'd be such a seismic event in European security with Russia's invasion of Ukraine and now with Sweden and Finland uh, set to to join the alliance. Uh, But before we dig into the main topic of this episode, which is to start looking ahead at NATO's future and the implementation of the strategic concept, I was hoping you can maybe give us your your overall impressions on whether NATO has risen to the moment. Well, Max, again, thanks for having me. And I, I think you've laid that out well. I think NATO went into the preparations for the Madrid summit having a certain agenda. So things like updating the strategic concept. Uh, and then it suddenly had a reverse course or, or add course and take into account Sweden and Finland wanting to join the alliance as well as the war in Ukraine. So given all of that, I would say that I, I believe the summit was a success. The new strategic concept compared to the one from 2010 really reflects the evolution in the security environment mentioning things like climate change, taking account of China's behavior, really characterizing NATO's relationship with Russia in a much more accurate way. I'm also very pleased that at the summit, we were able to make some concrete adjustments to NATO's deterrence and defense posture, moving that a little bit closer to deterrence by denial rather than just deterrence by punishment. And then even more surprising perhaps was our ability to get agreement to increase common funding across all three commonly funded budgets. That, I will admit, was a fight to the last, but I think allies saw the necessity of meeting the new level of ambition with adequate resourcing. And then, of course, the assistance to Ukraine. We're on a good course for that as well. So I think here at U.S. NATO, we were very pleased. Maybe I could ask you a little bit more about the the common funding, and maybe you could describe a little bit more about what that is and what that will allow NATO to do going forward? Sure. So I I think as many of your listeners will probably know, most contributions to NATO, most capabilities and forces uh, that are injected into NATO belong to its 30 member states. In addition to that, however, in addition to national forces, national capabilities, and national defense budget, there are three common funded budgets in NATO. So there's a military budget, a civil budget, and then something called NSIP, which is the NATO Security Investment Program. That is roughly akin to what U.S. listeners would know as military construction. So it funds runways, upgrades to bases, communications infrastructure, and things like that. So between those three commonly funded budgets, of which 
each member state is required to contribute a percentage towards. Uh, NATO can buy capabilities or infrastructure or fund uh, staff activities that are for the collective benefit of the alliance. And in many cases, we're looking for economies of scale. We're looking for things that are more effectively and efficiently funded through common funding rather than national funding. So to give you an example of something like that, we could think about, you know, ISR capabilities or fuel and pipelines, you know, things like that. Uh, sometimes it makes a bit more sense to fund that commonly rather than everybody coming to table with their own national contribution. Great. So the, the NATO summit in Madrid was uh, seems to, to sort of everyone the historic success. But I want to ask you if there's an area where, you know, you wish a little bit more happened or if some countries sort of are, are leaving a little bit uh, annoyed that hoping for a little bit more progress in certain areas, where where did the summit maybe fall short a little bit or where were you hoping to see more gains or some countries were ho hoping to see more gains? Well, we always like to remind everyone that NATO operates by consensus and, and trying to get consensus on anything, even among a group of close friends, can be quite challenging. So inevitably, there's a little bit of give and a little bit of take. So I think from a U.S. perspective, you know, we might have wanted stronger language on China. We might have wanted stronger language in calling out the growing strategic partnership between China and Russia. Uh, but you don't get everything you want. You, you, you give some and, and you take some. Uh, so I think for our eastern flank allies, maybe they would have liked to see an even larger presence forward earlier on. That's a work in progress as it's laid out uh, in the declaration and the strategic concept. But I, but I think if some of our frontline allies, if you ask them the same question, they think we need you know, divisions and, and, and larger forward presence already now to deter Russia. Uh, and conversely, I think our southern allies would have appreciated a strong Stronger emphasis on things like crisis management uh, or prevention in their region, where there is a lot of instability in that Mediterranean basin. Um, personally, I was a little bit disappointed, and, and Max, I think you'll share my frustration on this, that we weren't able to reach consensus on a center for democratic resilience. Um, I think that is given how uh, challenges to democratic norms and rule of law are really becoming a tool of disinformation and malign influence used by our adversaries, I would have really liked to have seen a bit more focus on that. Um, and the Center for Democratic Resilience that Representative Connolly as, as the chair of the NATO Parliamentary Assembly was advocating for, um, unfortunately that did not get across the finish line. So we will have to continue to advocate for that. Yes, when we uh, interviewed uh, Representative Connolly on this podcast, he very clearly articulated the, a strong case for that. And, and hopefully that could be on uh, NATO's agenda going forward. Uh, I want to sort of now shift gears a bit and uh, and maybe look look ahead. Uh, the alliance announced uh, major steps to bolster its defense and deterrence capabilities, including more forward deployed combat formations and an expansion of the NATO uh, response force. Now, this is a, a major commitment. Uh, especially given the challenges posed by the economic fallout of the pandemic and now uh, inflation and now the war, in combined with the need to replace weapons that were given to Ukraine, how can NATO ensure it implements these ambitions for defense and reinforcement on the eastern flank? So how, you know, how what is your level of confidence that all the needs that are there that NATO will be able, that NATO countries will be able to, to afford this and be able to step forward. This is a good opportunity to sort of clarify that there's really two things going on at the same time. So 
Uh, one of the things that grabbed headlines was the changes that NATO made to its deterrence and defense posture, this sort of reset of having more combat credible forces uh, closer to the eastern flank. That's personified in the eight battle groups. It's the expansion of the enhanced forward presence, some of the U.S. contributions in Romania and Poland. All of those things are very near term, but those forward forces ultimately have to be backed up by credible reinforcements. And that is a separate bucket of lines of effort that the alliance was working on already before the war in Ukraine. Uh, NATO was already thinking about how it could use what it calls its new force model to increase the readiness of those follow-on forces that have to come in behind the forces that are forward. I think some of the headlines that were picked up on was, you know, NATO's rapid reaction forces moving from 40,000 strong to 300,000 strong. Uh, so just in terms of truth and advertising, that aspect of improving NATO's deterrence and defense posture is something that's a work in progress. We are moving closer to deterrence by denial. We are making sure those follow-on forces are more credible and more ready but it is going to take some work. And I see two areas where we need to have intense focus in order to hold people to task and, and, and get at um, that level of ambition. One is really putting pressure on the host nations, so the Baltic states, Poland, Romania, to develop or renovate the infrastructure needed to receive these forces. I mean, this is, this is an incredible lift in addition to hosting their own national forces to have the training ranges and you know, just the accommodation to host that number of, of other NATO forces will be uh, a considerable investment. And then secondly, holding those framework nations themselves to task. So you know, I think your listeners are well aware the US is sort of in the lead on Poland and, and the UK and in Estonia and Canada and Latvia, Germany and Lithuania. Those framework nations are really going to be the ones who have to corral other contributions to make sure that that forward presence is as capable as possible. Certainly going to be challenging um, given, as you said, uh, the, the backfill in some key capabilities, as well as the strain on defense budgets. So now that NATO has agreed to a new strategic concept, and you, you mentioned the strategic concept uh, earlier, maybe you could walk us through sort of what happens next. And, and first, maybe explain, how would you sort of explain the, the, the vision for the strategic concept to maintain peace and stability? What are sort of the key features that, that you see? One thing that's stayed the same and consistent throughout this strategic concept and previous strategic concepts is the fact that NATO is a defensive alliance and that it has these three core tasks of collective defense, crisis management, and cooperative security. What I think has changed a little bit is the relative focus among those core tasks. Um, you know, throughout the, the 90s and the 2000s, we saw a little bit of, of pulling back and hoping for that peace dividend. And then we saw NATO go out of area to places like Iraq and Afghanistan. Now we're really seeing that renewed focus on collective defense. So I think relative to the other core tasks, this strategic concept's a bit different because of that, that renewed focus on collective defense. I'd also say that a new part of the vision is a focus on resilience. And that mirrors what I have heard is also a characteristic of the US national defense strategy. This idea that part of deterrence is also being resilient being able to withstand attack, an attack and work through that and, and sort of live to fight another day. So although resilience did not become 
a fourth core task for the alliance, as, as some had advocated for, I think you will see it threaded through the three core tasks. You know, another aspect of, of NATO that we debated uh, in the run-up and the, and the deliberations around the strategic concept was, is NATO a global alliance or is it transatlantic alliance with a global outlook? And I think we landed on the latter of those two, that NATO is able to address global challenges and take advantage of global opportunities, but it's still not global NATO. So when we look at something like the Indo-Pacific and the challenge of China, um, we're really talking about China's activities in the transatlantic space a little bit around its challenges to the rules-based international order, but there is still, I would argue, a bit of a geographic limitation on, on how NATO sees itself. Maybe I could just follow up quickly. You know, one of the big noteworthy developments at the Madrid summit was the participation of our Asian partners from Australia and Japan and Korea. What did they sort of bring to the table and, and what what's your sort of takeaway from uh, their participation, as well as um, the language in the strategic concept that looks at that mentions China that focuses on on the Indo-Pacific as as a region that that NATO needs to to be thinking about. Well, the first thing they bring is their experience living in a region where China is their neighbor. I think you know the Baltic allies in NATO probably more acutely feel the threat from Russia. These Indo-Pacific partners certainly have more direct experience with how China uses things like disinformation, influence, economic investments to, to gain a foothold uh, in their country. So we regularly hear from Australia on some of the tactics that sound quite si similar to things that people would be familiar with in a NATO context with regard to Russia. But there are nuances that these countries bring that allow us to get a bit of ahead of the problem. I think there's also something around the symbolism of making sure that as we address Russia's behavior in the war in Ukraine, it's not just you know NATO and, and the United States versus Russia. This is really a global alliance. And when you look at the Ukraine defense contact group that the US Secretary of Defense runs, that's over 50 countries involved. And so the involvement of our Indo-Pacific partners on sanctions, on speaking out against human rights violations, that really lends a, a global credibility um, to and weight to what, what NATO is already doing. Uh, and then finally, we do have a pretty specific plan for areas where we want to be working with these, these um, four Indo-Pacific uh, partners in particular. And that is on things like, like climate, for example, and resilience. Again, resilience being a big theme. They've got a lot of lessons to share. There's also been a lot of back and forth on deterrence and defense between the Baltic states and Taiwan, for example, informally, of course, but uh, the geography might be slightly different, but the experience and the tactics that are being used um, by their respective adversaries, there's certainly things that translate and, and lessons to be learned. Before I sort of uh, shift gears to maybe talk about the war in Ukraine and also where NATO, I think, is headed over the next decade, I was wondering if you could maybe give us a look behind the curtain of what actually happens at a NATO summit. We ran into each other in Madrid. Uh, I was at the the public side of the of the uh, NATO Madrid forum. But maybe you could tell us what was it like? What was the sort of day to day activity? Uh, were you really relieved to get home? Did you have lunch? You know, how how did 
how, uh, what was your sort of take on the, on the conference? Um, and maybe you could give us some, some, some details of just how, how, how it was like to be there. You know, your podcast is called the road to Madrid. And I think we all felt that, that everything we'd been doing in those preceding months was the road to Madrid. So foreign ministerials, defense ministerials, 11 revisions of the drafts of the strategic concept were all things that were building up to that moment of the summit uh, at the end of July, sorry, at the end of June. See, I'm, I'm losing time here. But certainly that was very exciting to, to kind of see all of that work culminate in real results. And things do go down to the mat. I mean, people are fighting over words and the strategic concept and, and even more so the, the summit de declaration, uh, which reflects those more real-time announcements to the very end. But ideally, most of your work is done. The interventions are written, the papers are set to, to approve by heads of state and government. One unique aspect that I would mention, having worked in, in the Department of Defense for many years, is that when you get to a summit, it's the heads of state and government that are the, that are the main show. So it's the president who is the action, you know, who's, who's the main guy, and the Secretary of Defense and Secretary of State essentially become his, his action officers. And so a lot of the staff are just on standby to resolve these last minute issues or support the bilats. Secretary Austin and Secretary Blinken are a little bit standing there waiting to see what the president needs. Uh, so it's it's a little bit different dynamic than a defense ministerial or, or a foreign ministerial. Yeah, in that sense, everyone is a staffer except for the president. Especially. Yes. <laughs> and there are some nations that make the president feel like a like a staffer. So <laughs> I think he's he's been on he was on his toes a few times uh, when when people sort of grabbed him by the jacket and had issues they wanted to raise. So so I think everybody um, you know is is on the spot because you are in these big rooms where people sort of circle around trying to get business done or they're in the hallways trying to get business done that includes the president yes well it's good that he also has great great staffers around him that can that can tell him what to expect before going into the room although he's uh, he's someone who's very fluent in 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 the language of NATO maybe we could pivot a bit and talk about uh the war in Ukraine in in, in particular how, has the war in Ukraine impacted NATO? Um, you are there, you see how uh, the discussions and diplomacy work, how NATO is operating as a military alliance. What sort of impacts has, has the war in Ukraine had on the alliance? And, and what are sort of the longer term impacts that you, you see from the, the war in Ukraine? The most shocking impact that I've seen, or, or not, really, not really shocking or surprising, but the most impressive change happened around that North Atlantic Council table as allies over a period of week, weeks watched the intelligence picture develop before their eyes. Um, and I think there was a little bit of, you know, confirmation bias or, or something like that going on because, you know, you can imagine as, as a country, you have a strategy, you have a national security strategy, you have a vision for your place in the world. And I think for a lot of countries on February 24th, um, that vision and those strategies were just upended. Uh, and I'm sure others have told you this, but you know, on a dime, Germany was out of Nord Stream 2. It was increasing its defense budget. It was within a few weeks sending lethal uh, weapons to Ukraine uh, against pre-existing policy. So really a lot of changes that I think came as a result of 
country's assumptions really just being turned on their head and the disbelief, I think, that initially several several countries did have. Even when it happened, I think those who thought it would happen might have including myself, we're still a little bit shocked at, at the brashness and the brazenness of, of Putin's behavior. But, you know, I think NATO has been pretty consistent that they have three lines of effort in their approach to Ukraine, the first being supporting allies and making sure that this conflict uh, doesn't extend to alliance territory. Uh, secondly, supporting Ukraine. A lot of that assistance, particularly the lethal aspects, are happening bilaterally. Um, NATO is really focused on, on the non-lethal assistance and, and some of the coordination. And then imposing costs on Russia. And again, that's something that is happening at NATO, but it's also happening in cooperation with the European Union or with individual countries. I, I do think that we're seeing a turning point uh, in the war now, whereby Ukraine is transitioning to using more sophisticated weapons. So we might need more training. There's a potential NATO coordination role. And then longer term, Ukraine will have to rebuild um, its institutions, its military, its infrastructure. So I do think, again, there's in the medium to long term, there's a, there's a role for both NATO and the European Union in both in, in all of those tasks. You know, one concern that we hear from a lot of commentators uh, is about uh, the unity of the alliance and, and whether that's sustainable. It was clearly on display in Madrid how unified uh, countries were in support of Ukraine, uh, in support of each other, in ensuring um, the defense of uh, the defense of Europe. I guess one question for you is just sort of how sustainable uh, do you think this this unity, this level of commitment is that, uh, you know, there's been a lot of pledges for increased defense spending. But, you know, with with economic uh, woes on the uh, on the horizon, with rising inflation and, and high gas prices and energy prices uh, in Europe, maybe potentially bracing for a recession. Are you concerned at all? that that this was sort of a high watermark for alliance unity and that it's going to start to dissipate or or how do you see uh, the the alliance sort of alliance unity going forward at the moment alliance unity seems very it seems like it's still cohesive and that it's still there and everybody's still rowing in the same direction but you're right to to put a focus on the fact that there are costs. And if we don't pay attention to those costs, whether they're collective or individual, and try to mitigate some of those costs, that can lead to, to a fatigue that is not necessarily translated into non-support for Ukraine. It just becomes, when we're talking about fuel and inflation and supply chain issues, it becomes a very practical uh, challenge. So some of the things that we're trying to address to mitigate those risks and 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 by extension maintain unity um, over the long term is is looking at backfill. So a lot of NATO allies have given away things in their own inventory that they needed for their own national defense or or for their commitments to NATO. Things like Patriots or or HIMARS or ammunition or tanks. And so we are working with individual countries, with the US organizations like DSCA and, and DOD to try to expedite some of those um, backfill issues so we don't get um, a security vacuum among the, within, among the capabilities of, of allies, um, because that could lead to them second guessing whether they can do without capability A, um, even as important as Ukraine is. The second is, is costs. Um, you know, you mentioned fuel. I thought Ursula von der Leyen's 
proposal that Europeans sort of self curtail uh, their energy use going into the winter uh, was a really great proposal because I have no doubt that part of the Russian strategy is to draw this out and then when winter comes uh, to put the screws on on the Europeans in particular. So how can we create price caps or or stockpiling or trade um, you know, trade arrangements to mitigate um, some of those difficulties that we know are coming down the road. But I, but I think people are very aware here of the risk of, of fatigue the longer this goes on and really trying to troubleshoot some of the things that, that could underpin that. One of the things that um, struck me was that the the language uh, on uh, in, in the strategic concept about uh, cooperation with the European Union. Uh, you've mentioned uh, Ursula von der Leyen and and the EU. Uh, and one of the things that EU has sort of emerged in this crisis uh, has it as a defense actor, providing I think two point five billion euros to help backfill countries to provide uh, lethal assistance to Ukraine. How do you see the NATO EU relationship evolving? There's been a lot of bureaucratic tension. In in the past and in American concern that the EU would sort of try to, uh, you know, complicate in some ways NATO's operations. You know, I know the Biden administration has been an incredibly pro EU administration, uh, probably the most pro EU administration in history uh, and it, with major advances with the US EU Trade and Tech Council. How do you see that evolving on the on the defense side? And what was your sort of reaction to the EU NATO language and the strategic concept? And how do you see this relationship evolving? The value that I've always seen in NATO EU relations is and, and defense cooperation is when it gets away from the theoretical and the broad declarations and the big words about what each each party would like to achieve down into the more pragmatic aspects of that cooperation. And so, um, you know, maybe one one positive coming out of this terrible war on Ukraine is a more pragmatic approach to cooperation between NATO and the EU. So, you know, the EU has has money. Uh, It has a mechanism to help support countries who want to provide equipment to Ukraine, but but maybe don't have the finances to, to backfill that equipment. So I think we've seen examples of, you know, this European peace mechanism or European peace facility in action. Um, And that's something tangible that shows that there is value added uh, from the European Union having this defense role alongside NATO in a way that complements NATO. But I think we need to see more of that. Um, I think in the run up to the summit, there was a lot of focus on signing the declaration. But the declaration is, is lovely and it's wonderful, but we already have a roadmap of 70 some areas for cooperation. So let's just get on to the implementation and the focus. Um, Something that I think will really be helpful is is Sweden and Finland joining the alliance. Then we will have even more of a plurality of countries who are members of both organizations. Um, So they'll be listening to the conversations in, in you know, around both tables, and we'll be able to uh, support things that make sense and and maybe, you know, call a little bit of uh, BS on the things that, that are not particularly helpful. So, so I'm helpful that I'm hopeful that uh, that NATO EU relations will become even more pragmatic in the years to come. Great. Yeah, I, I sort of struggle to often see how the two NATO and the EU could sort of be at odds when basically the membership is is uh, so significantly that, you know, it's effectively they would have to be countries would have to be at odds with themselves. I want to sort of ask you about Sweden and Finland. 
you know, I think when 2022 started, no one had in their kind of NATO bingo card that NATO would be uh, pursuing enlargement. What do you think is the future of enlargement going forward over the next decade uh, for NATO? Is this, you know, is Sweden and Finland kind of representing, you know, uh, sort of the end of the road or, uh, you know, are there, where are the other countries in appetite for, uh, for potential enlargement going forward? Something uh, heads of state and government were very proud about, um, you know, at, at the summit was the ability to not just say that NATO's door remained open uh, to prospective members, but to demonstrate that by officially welcoming um, Sweden and Finland as invitees. But we did have to think through um, how accepting Sweden and Finland so enthusiastically and what we thought would be so quickly did send a bit of a strange message to aspirants who've been waiting outside that door for for a long time, Georgia and Ukraine in in particular. Um, So there's a lot of thinking here about how absent the ability to bring our aspirant countries on board tomorrow how we draw them closer in the same way that happened with Sweden and Finland, frankly, as enhanced opportunity partners. The reason that uh, allies anticipate Sweden and Finland being able to integrate into the alliance so quickly is because they were sitting around the table, thanks to um, you know some of the modalities that had been put in place for cooperation. They were training and exercising alongside NATO. We need to extend that same courtesy and level of cooperation to at-risk partners, recognizing that for a variety of reasons, that it would be difficult to, to make them members um, in the very near future. So got to draw them as, as close as possible, uh, even absent or short of membership in the near term. Can I ask you to maybe bring out a crystal ball and sort of look forward to, to 2030 when we think about uh, the the last strategic concept uh, that was done in 2010? It treated Russia very differently, uh, didn't really mention China. And then obviously with the, the Russia's initial invasion of Ukraine in 2014, uh, things radically shifted very quickly and that the, the, you could argue the strategic concept in, in 2010 didn't, didn't have much legs to it. How do you see events in Europe sort of unfolding over the next decade and how will they sort of be guided by this, this strategic concept? Are there uh, things in this strategic concept that or elements that perhaps needed to be addressed or that maybe weren't given a lot of attention to? You know, in any development of, of a strategy or a plan, there's there's a good deal of, of guesswork, uh, particularly when we're talking about sort of predicting the future. But at the same time, you know, whenever I've worked on one of these strategies or plans, there's always this temptation to make it different from the last time. And sometimes that's right. And it's always worth sort of looking around at, at the strategic environment and thinking about what's changed. But I, I think it's also important for NATO and, and others to think about what hasn't changed. Um, if the war in Ukraine uh, twice now has taught us anything, that some things don't change. Some nations still operate on the principle of might is right. Um, some actors out there still resort to terrorism and violation of human rights. So there's some pretty basic challenges that I that I believe may not may not change over the next decade. Uh, and we need to continue to address them rather than sort of hope they will go away as we move on to the next shiny object. Um, but in that shiny object care, uh, category, 
I do think that NATO is going to be forced uh, out of its comfort zone and be challenged to become more global, uh, just because of the nature of a lot of the threats that it's dealing with are transnational. Uh, and you might not want to, you know, do a, you know, an exercise in the Indo-Pacific through the South China Sea, but there's there's a link between the Mediterranean, the Atlantic, and the Pacific that that could force your hand. Um, so I think transnational threats are something I'd put on the radar screen. Uh, something that NATO started to dip its toe into, um, but but really needs to accelerate, is the role of emerging and disruptive technologies. They can be a challenge, they can be an opportunity, um, but we're not great about necessarily understanding how they change the future character of conflict, uh, for better or worse. You know, but the alliance is is looking at the problem. But when I when I read some of the strategies, not just at a NATO level, but at a national level. We're really just on the tip of the iceberg and thinking about things like integrated deterrence or how um, tools like AI can can really change the nature of conflict. Great. And maybe as a, a, our final question, not just for this podcast, but for this podcast series, for the last decade or so, the United States has really or really since 2014 pushed European allies to spend more on defense. Two percent uh, was a major theme of our of our diplomatic engagement with our European partners, wanting Europe to meet their defense spending commitments that they made at the 2014 Wales Summit. What do you think going forward is going to be sort of the main thrust for the United States in terms of our diplomatic engagement? Is it going to still be about defense spending? Is it going to be about troop readiness? Or what, is it going to be to try to get our, our partners to focus more on China? What do you think is going to be sort of the major emphasis for the United States when it comes to NATO and our European partners over the next decade? Broadly speaking, it's probably about making sure that that we have the resources and the organization to meet the level of ambition that we've set out for ourselves. When you read the strategic concept and all the documents and papers that underpin it, it's very impressive, um, but it will require a lot of resources, not just in terms of cash investments, but really making sure that the forces that allies are bringing to the table are ready, that they're capable, that they're, they're well integrated. Um, and making sure that things like our posture are aligned with our plans and the capabilities we're investing in. That is always a challenge. NATO has plenty of bureaucratic processes to help um, shepherd that along, but it will require engagement at the national level as well. Um, I've always been a fan of, of looking for where national interests overlap with NATO interests, and then pushing countries in that direction. I, I do think that that increases the likelihood that you will get, um, you will see delivery of, of the things you've asked that individual ally for. Uh, but it will, you, you haven't heard the last of, of burden sharing, unfortunately. Regardless of the administration, I think this is a core talking point of the U.S. administration and a problem that has, has yet to be fully reconciled. I, I I think that's that's definitely going to be the case no matter what happens. Uh, I think at European defense budgets. Well, well, Rachel, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for launching this podcast. And I think I can speak for all of us that we're uh, incredibly grateful that you're out there in Brussels, that you're representing the United States, and uh, and working hard to to strengthen the, the NATO alliance. So th thank you for the work that you're doing. Thank you for this podcast, uh, and thank you for joining us. And thanks for elevating NATO on on the agenda of all things global security. Well, that was the final episode of NATO's Road to Madrid. Thank you to Rachel for joining us, my colleague Colin Wall, our lead researcher and project manager, and our editor, Alana Nevins. 
Thank you also to our listeners for tuning in over these past 10 months. It's been a lot of fun to make this series, and we hope you found it interesting and informative. This podcast series is ending, but the Europe, Russia, and Eurasia program has lots of exciting content in the pipeline on all things NATO and European security, including a new podcast on Europe that we plan to launch this fall. So stay tuned and keep subscribing. We'll see you soon.